This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, June 16th. I'm Matt Hoish. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, San Miguel County enters Stage 1 fire restrictions. Norwood School District considers arming teachers. Heritage Stories with Paula Scheidegger. And a mountain weather forecast. But first... San Miguel County Search and Rescue conducted a mission on Monday to rescue an injured climber in Cracked Canyon. According to the San Miguel County Sheriff's Office, the local and experienced climber fell 30 feet. The multi-agency rescue mission required a technical rope rescue, taking over four hours and 35 staff and volunteers. The climber was transported from the scene by ambulance and taken by helicopter to St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction with multiple extensive traumatic injuries. San Miguel County is entering Stage 1 fire restrictions this week. The biggest thing that that really impacts people is no open burning. So, you know, campfires are basically prohibited unless they're in a developed campsite or a developed permanent fire ring. That's San Miguel County Sheriff Bill Masters. In addition, charcoal grills must be enclosed and gas and propane grills must have an on-off switch for flames. Smoking is only allowed in an enclosed vehicle or building or on hardscape areas and cigarette butts must be fully extinguished and appropriately disposed of. Fireworks are also prohibited, and anyone using a combustion engine, such as a chainsaw, must have a spark-arresting device and a fire extinguisher. If dry conditions persist, Masters adds, San Miguel County should prepare to enter Stage 2 restrictions. It used to be that every time we went into Stage 1, the monsoons would start within an hour or two. I I don't think that's going to happen this year. So until that hits and opens up and gives us some some uh, good soaking rains, we're probably going to stay in um, uh, stage one. Uh, If we have this continued dryness, we may go into uh, stage two, and I would be prepared for that. The county will enter stage one fire restrictions on Thursday, June 17th. The restrictions will remain in place indefinitely. Parts of the Grand Mesa Uncompahgre and Gunnison National Forest will enter fire restrictions on Friday, The Bureau of Land Management has not announced if it is heading into restrictions. More information is available at westslopefireinfo.com. Teachers in Norwood may soon be allowed to conceal carry handguns at school. The Norwood School Board is considering a resolution to arm teachers and staff through a school security officer program. I know this is a difficult topic. Uh, Nobody uh, really wants to uh, think about the possibility of there being a school shooting in our little town of Norwood. That's Norwood School District Superintendent Ken Lawrence presenting their proposal to the school board on Tuesday. Lawrence notes he hopes there will never be an instance where a teacher or staff member needs to fire a gun at school, but he adds the district has a responsibility to keep students and staff safe. If we're talking active shooter, um, we want to be as armed as the the adversary is. We don't want to take a a knife to a gunfight, you know, or fists to a gunfight. You know, if we have staff members who are willing to charge in toward the gunfire, we want to give them a fighting chance to to end it and uh, not allow that 
um, evil person to harm any more students than uh, than possible. Under Colorado statute, concealed carry is permitted on school grounds by security officers, as long as it is allowed by the school district. If approved, the resolution would give district employees the option to become a security officer. Employees would not be required to carry, and those who choose to carry would be required to complete a 24-hour initial training in addition to more frequent training stipulated by the district. Laura Carno is the executive director of Faster Colorado, an organization that trains school staff to carry. She says the 24-hour initial training is standard. If you take a police academy, um, generally speaking, again, it varies across the country, but a police academy, the amount of time they spend on how to deal with an active killer um, or a rampage killer um, the curriculum that they teach law enforcement is the curriculum that we teach armed school staff. Lawrence adds the proposal is just one component to the district's safety plan. There are also lockdown drills, fire alarms. Another piece of the security plan is we've put in security cameras so that we can keep a better eye on what's going on inside and, and around our buildings. Uh, last year, we implemented the uh, perimeter security with the uh, key cards to control who has access to our buildings. While the school board had the option to pass a resolution approving the program on Tuesday, it decided to hold off in order to get more feedback from the community. During preliminary comment at the meeting, feedback from the public was mixed. Simi Alexander is a parent in the district and supports the resolution. Our school is safe, but we've had a few scares and the, and the cameras don't always work. I mean, all it takes is one time, and wouldn't it be nice to know that these kids are protected that one time? It may never happen. I mean, all we can hope is we never have to ever need that security officer, but it's just one time. Norwood School District student Colton Shumway is also in support. He says having a teacher who's armed gives students a chance of hiding in the case of a school shooter. Many of those in opposition shared their concern about the process for passing the resolution. Here's Andrea Brattingham, a teacher at the Norwood School District. I'd also like to go on record as stating I'm not opposed to an armed security presence on campus. That said, what I am against is the way this topic was presented. An email came to staff three days ago. The process seemed, to me, a little sneaky, to say the least. There's been a safety and crisis team at the school for years and training on the standard response protocol. So getting an email three days ago with a presentation and potential approval by the school board on a resolution to approve armed security officers was a bit shocking. For Wendy Crank, Juvenile Service Director for San Miguel County, she believes arming staff could do more harm than good. If there's a school shooting in Norwood, you're not going to just have the San Miguel County Sheriff coming to help. We're going to not have enough resources within San Miguel County to handle that. We're going to be calling on Uray County to come and help, and Uray County ambulances, and the West End, and Montrose County Sheriff. If they have staff running around with a weapon, they're going to be considered an active shooter and they will be shot. She suggests looking to and implementing safety protocols already in place or available, rather than arming staff. 
Norwood's incoming chief marshal, Katie Neesham, attended the meeting and says she's willing to work with the district on training if it implements the program. San Miguel County Sheriff Bill Masters was not in attendance, but says he understands the district's concern with school safety. He adds he'll respect any decision the school board makes on the issue. With no decisions made on the program, the school board plans to host a community meeting in the coming weeks to gather more input from the public. June is Immigrant Heritage Month, and Celebrate KOTO is partnering with Tri-County Health Network to feature the stories of some of the members of our local immigrant community in a series we're calling Heritage Stories. If you want to share your story or connect us with someone to hear theirs, reach out to us at news at koto.org. This week, Paula Scheidegger tells her story in Spanish and English. Mi nombre es Paula Scheidegger y yo soy de Colombia. Vine a los Estados Unidos cuando tenía 19 años. Crecí en una familia de cinco en las montañas, afuera de Bogotá, como 15 minutos. No aprendí mucho inglés en Colombia porque mi escuela era de España y todo lo que hacíamos era español o castellano. My name is Paula Scheidegger, and I am from Colombia. I came to the United States when I was 19 years old. I grew up in a family of five in the mountains. It was about 15 minutes from Bogota. I didn't learn much English in Colombia because my school was from Spain, and we did everything in Spanish and Castilian. Durante este tiempo, fue muy difícil crecer en Colombia debido a Pablo Escobar, la guerrilla colombiana, el estado de guerra, la violencia y la pobreza. Tuve la suerte de que mis padres trabajaran y que tuviéramos una casa. No crecí con mucho dinero, pero siempre teníamos comida en la mesa. It was hard growing up in Colombia then because of Pablo Escobar, the Colombia guerrilla, a state of war and violence and poverty. I was lucky enough that both my parents were working and we had a home. We always had food on the table, but we did have limited resources. Mi papá trabajaba para el gobierno en Colombia como periodista. Llevaba 19 años trabajando para la misma entidad. Escribí un artículo sobre la guerrilla y eso no les gustó. Desafortunadamente, la guerrilla comenzó a amenazarnos. Mi papá tomó la decisión de venir a los Estados Unidos y buscar asilo político. Pudo presentar el caso y fue aprobado. Luego, mi familia y yo tuvimos la oportunidad de venir a los Estados Unidos. Nos mudamos a la Florida y tuve mucha suerte de tener acceso a diferentes recursos y a través del asilo político de mi padre. My dad worked for the government as a journalist. He had been working for the same entity for 19 years. He wrote an article about the guerrilla, and they did not like that. Unfortunately, the guerrilla then started threatening us. My dad decided to come to the United States and seek political asylum. He was able to present the case and was approved. Then me and my family were able to come to the United States. We moved to Florida, and I was very lucky to have access to different resources through my father's political asylum. Fue difícil no poder regresar a Colombia hasta que tuve mi ciudadanía estadounidense. Sabía que no podría visitar mi hogar durante al menos 10 años. Cuando llegamos, mi primera prioridad fue aprender inglés y fui a un colegio comunitario. Entonces decidí perseguir mi sueño de ser una bióloga marina y fui a la Universidad de Miami. Me gradué con una doble especialización en ciencias marinas y en biología. 
It was hard not being able to go to Colombia until I had a U.S. citizenship. I knew I wouldn't be able to visit my home for at least 10 years. When we arrived, my first priority was to learn English, and I went to a community college. Then, I decided to pursue my dream of being a marine biologist and applied to the University of Miami. I graduated with a double major in marine science and biology. En la universidad, conocí un hombre muy guapo de Ridgeway, Colorado. Visité Colorado con él y me enamoré de Colorado. En el 2006, nos mudamos a Ridgeway. Los trabajos de bióloga marina no estaban disponibles cuando me mudé aquí. Así que decidí volver a la escuela. Trabajé como camarera y conseguí un trabajo en el centro médico como intérprete en la recepción. Aproveché la oportunidad y aunque le tenía miedo a la sangre, estaba feliz de hacerlo. In college, I met a very handsome man from Ridgeway. I visited Colorado with him and fell in love with it. In 2006, we moved to Ridgeway. Marine biologists' jobs were not readily available when I moved here, so I decided to go back to school. I bartended and got a job with the Telluride Medical Center as an interpreter at the front desk. I jumped at the opportunity, and even though I was scared of blood, I was happy to do it. Trabajando con pacientes, proveedores y el equipo del centro médico, me enamoré de la medicina y decidí obtener mi certificación técnica de emergencia en medicina y luego me convertí en un asistente médica. Luego completé mi licenciatura de enfermería en Denver. Cuando regresé en el 2016, tuve la oportunidad de convertirme en la jefa clínica del sector primario. Through working with patients, providers, and the TMC team, I fell in love with medicine and decided to get my EMT certification, and then became a medical assistant. I then completed my bachelor's in nursing in Denver. When I came back in 2016, I became the practice manager of primary care. He tenido muchas oportunidades y he conocido a mucha gente increíble que me ha apoyado y me ha abierto las puertas. Mi español ha sido mi espada por tanta necesidad que hay de intérpretes y defensores. Mi padre no hablaba muy bien inglés y recuerdo haberlo visto luchar y muchas personas hoy en día también luchan por no poder comunicarse. Es algo que tomo muy en serio y me he centrado en cómo poder ayudar a los latinos. I have had a lot of opportunities and have met a lot of amazing people that have supported me and opened doors for me. My Spanish has been my sword because there is so much need for interpreters and advocates. My dad didn't speak great English and I remember seeing him struggle growing up. A lot of people today also struggle with not being able to communicate. It is something I have taken to heart and I have focused on how we can help the Latinos. Me siento muy privilegiada de estar donde estoy y de haber tenido el apoyo que tuve. Somos muy afortunados de tener una comunidad de inmigrantes tan vibrante en Telluride. Todo lo que quiero es que entendamos de dónde vienen y que seamos amables con ellos. No ha sido una transición fácil dejar su país de origen y espero que podamos ayudar a abrir puertas para los miembros de nuestra comunidad inmigrante. Los inmigrantes pueden crecer y pueden contribuir mucho. Hay tantos inmigrantes con mucho potencial y todo lo que necesitan es una mano o alguien que les abra la puerta. I feel very privileged to be where I am and to have had the support that I did. We are so lucky to have such a vibrant immigrant community in Telluride. All I want 
is that we understand where they come from and that we're kind to them. It hasn't been an easy transition to leave your home country. And I hope we can help open doors for our immigrant community members. Immigrants can flourish and they can contribute so much. There are so many immigrants with such a great potential and all they need is a hand or someone to open a door. The Telluride Food Pantry has new hours. Beginning this Thursday, the pantry will be open from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. for people to select dairy, produce, and meat items. Anyone picking up at the pantry will have about 15 minutes to make their choices and must wear a face mask. Only two guests and two volunteers will be allowed in the pantry at a time, and people should bring their own bags. Non-perishable items must still be ordered online at telluridefoodpantry.org. Anyone who cannot order online can come to the pantry with a list of items they need. This Thursday kicks off the second weekend of the 2021 Telluride Bluegrass Festival. This Saturday is also Juneteenth a holiday that marks the day the last enslaved people in the South found out the Civil War was over and they were free. In honor of both, we are rebroadcasting a piece we aired last year, around Juneteenth, about the African and African-American roots of bluegrass music. I think what happens is that people feel the stuff that went into this music, but then we don't talk about it. You know, so then that's a surprise. But it's like, I think all the stuff that we're talking about is what people feel in the music. My name is Rihanna Giddens and I'm a musician. I, I have to say, you know, genres are, I'm not a fan of it because I, I, I also feel like it erases the history of, you know, cross-cultural collaboration that really goes into American music. People listen to everything. You know, and like these string bands that were kind of all over the country, they played anything. They played what people wanted to hear, you know. So there was this sort of American music that was that was coming into being. But then the record companies get into it and you start having recordings and you have to have a bin. If you want to sell music, you have to you have to put it in the category that, because that's that's how marketing works. Right. So for me, it wasn't a natural thing in, in American music to have genres. It was a thing that was forced upon the music. My name's Sean McCullough, and I teach musicology at the University of Tennessee and also play music for kids and play in a band with my wife called The Lone Tones. The banjo has its roots in Africa, and of course the fiddle has its roots in Europe. So that's a nice image, you know, the marriage of the European fiddle and the African banjo, but it is much deeper than that. Like, I got into the banjo, and then I found, oh, the banjo is an African-American instrument. I'm like, what? For me, the realization that something that was uh, considered and portrayed as such a white instrument, and it's not to say that the banjo doesn't have a huge part in Appalachia, or the Appalachia doesn't have a huge part of the banjo, which it's, it is, but the, that kind of narrative was just absolutely false. And so I was... I was like, well, if that, something that we all would say, yes, of course I know that, is so utterly wrong, what else is so utterly wrong? You know, even if you 
go back pre-bluegrass as a specific style and go to older string band styles and you listen to, say, a Scottish or Irish fiddler play a tune and then listen to an Appalachian fiddler play the same tune, one of the huge influences you're going to hear on that Appalachian style is the African-American elements of rhythmic syncopation, improvisation and blue notes, bending notes, bending into notes. So those things have been around for a long time because, of course, there were black fiddle players too, right? And so they became part of the tradition. So everybody who's coming here has a home country. African-Americans didn't. They had a home continent that's a lot different, right? So as soon as African Africans stepped foot on in the New World, they were already starting to have to meld with other Africans, with Europeans. They started a process of synthesizing so when you get to the new world, you automatically start the process. It's not assimilation, it's acculturation, right? And it's a mixture of cultures that's, that's forming a new culture in the new world. The backbeat has become such a huge part of American music, you know, putting the rhythmic accent on the two and the four in a meter of four beats per measure, you know, that comes out of this notion of syncopation that was influenced by African and African-American music. So if you have a like, you know, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. You feel that it's pulling at the beat by um, kind of accenting other places. And syncopation, of course, is, you know, can be more complex than just the backbeat. It's just a little string. There's a lot of history and a lot of culture um, to be found in, in music. I just, you know, every time I, I dig, I find things that, that then make the history books make more sense. The more that I like dig into stuff in the 20s, for example, the more my grandparents make sense to me, you know. So I, I believe that it's a really important piece of the, the story. I certainly think there is room to acknowledge that good musicians like to learn from good musicians. But most certainly, if you put it in a larger cultural context, I think cultural appropriation is an appropriate term for a lot of what has gone on. So let's take an example of two musicians, um, a black musician, a white musician, sitting around on a porch in Western North Carolina in the early 1900s. They're playing banjo, fiddle, they're learning from one another. You know, if that just stays there um, or just kind of goes out into that community, it's, it's a wonderful example of cultural exchange and how musicians learn from one another. But if that white musician then goes and gets a record contract um, in an era in which that black musician wouldn't be able to have the same opportunity you know, then that's like a clear example of kind of cultural appropriation in a broader context. Again, it might not even mean that the musician was meaning to do that. They weren't meaning to leave the other musician behind or trying to steal from them necessarily. But the cultural result is the same, is that it's unfair. I think the most important thing is to stop taking stuff personally. You know, I think that's a big problem in a lot of these things is that you can say this is what happened and then people go, well, I'm not this or that or that's not how I blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I don't really care. I'm just saying this is what it was. And this is why we have these perceptions. So this is powerful stuff. Like we have to grapple with perception as a powerful drug. It is.
President Joe Biden has nominated a Coloradan to serve as the next ambassador to Mexico. Ken Salazar has a long history of public service. The fifth-generation rancher from the San Luis Valley was a Democratic U.S. senator before becoming Interior Secretary under President Obama. The Senate must still confirm his nomination. The Denver Post reports Salazar is one of the few people Biden is nominating as an ambassador without any prior experience as a diplomat. Governor Jared Polis signed two bills on Wednesday that aim to reduce the cost of health care. KOTO Scott Franz has more. The first creates a new insurance option on the individual market that supporters say could reduce premiums by 15% over three years. It drew some of the most fierce lobbying activity during the session. Sponsor Carrie Donovan of Vail says getting the bill to the governor was a triumph of people over profits. We will be able to have a new option for every citizen of Colorado on the individual and small group market that will be cheaper will be added consumer choice, and for one of the first times in the country, we brought equity into the conversation of health care coverage. The bill was amended more than 20 times, and even some of Donovan's fellow Democrats are skeptical it will achieve the savings they hope for. Polis signed another bill creating a state board to set caps on the cost of prescription drugs. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with areas of smoke and a low around 50 degrees. Thursday should be cloudy with a high in the mid-80s and a 30% chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. Thursday night expect mostly cloudy skies with a low around 50 degrees and a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Friday should be sunny with a high near 80 degrees and a 40% chance of precipitation. Friday night expect cloudy skies with a low around 50 and a 30% chance of showers and thunderstorms. This has been the news for Wednesday, June 16th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206. KOTO News will be off on Thursday and Friday for our annual Bluegrass broadcast with no newscasts or our Thursday COVID noon update. The Bluegrass broadcast will kick off on Thursday at 3 p.m. If you're in the local listening range, tune in on your FM dial. For those streaming on KOTO.org, we've created special archived Bluegrass programming for you to enjoy. We will be back with our regularly scheduled news programming on Monday. And now, a personal commentary. Attention parents with young children. Do you have questions about your toddler? Bright Futures is partnering with local toddler experts to bring you a free virtual panel discussion all about toddlers. Hi, this is Madeline with Bright Futures. All About Toddlers will take place in English on Wednesday, June 23rd from 7 to 8 p.m. on Zoom. During this discussion, we will cover topics like toilet learning, tantrums, development, and independent activity ideas for toddlers. For more information or to register, please visit our website, brightfuturesforchildren.org. You can also email me at madeline at brightfuturesforchildren.org. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you'd like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.